Elon Musk came under fire for suppressing free speech in Turkey on the eve of a critical election. Did he prioritize his wallet over his values? And will his new CEO make any bit of a difference? We'll then turn to the fight over the debt ceiling. Biden and members of Congress are set to meet today. As we're sitting here to record, how close are they to compromise and what happens if they can't strike a deal? Then. CNN is in the hot seat over its Trump town hall. We'll size up the arguments for and against their decision to platform Trump, and we'll give you our take. And finally, Google unveiled a new AI feature meant to compete with ChatGPT. We'll discuss what we know so far about whether and how you can use it. All of this and more on Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, do you know what my favorite four words in the English language are? Let's hear it. I told you so. I have been telling you this guy is full of shit on free speech basically since we've started talking about him. And I have a feeling this might be the episode where you finally come full circle here. I know you've been warming up to this idea, but drop it for our audience. Drop some knowledge on us. What happened with this this battle over... Uh, the Turkish election. Yeah. So on the eve of the Turkish uh, election for Erdogan, who has been criticized for um, a variety of kind of authoritarian oversteps, um, corruption, his handling of a recent earthquake uh, that killed tens of thousands of people. Um, It could have been a referendum on him. And Turkey then pressured Twitter to remove tweets and the accounts of activists who were calling out his corruption, including four accounts and 409 tweets on the eve of the election. And it was a a very razor thin election, but now there's going to be a runoff on May 28th because neither side ended up getting 50%. So Musk is obviously really in the hot seat for having censored at the demand of a an authoritarian regime at risk of Twitter being shut down entirely in the country. So that was what um, the back the backdoor kind of or backroom negotiations were about, but certainly not a great look on the free speech front and certainly at a very critical point in time for Turkey. Yeah. And we have very little information from Twitter about what you know, their rationale was and what the request was. But there was a Turkish news site that reported that the censored accounts included a Kurdish businessman who claimed that Erdogan and his allies staged a 2016 coup. There was also an investigative journalist who had been reporting on corruption in the country who'd been censored. And this raises all kinds of questions, right? Like Musk has been connected to Erdogan since 2017, when the two met in Turkey to discuss a collaboration between Tesla and SpaceX and Turkish firms. Uh, They apparently shared a really awkward uh, minute-long handshake at the World Cup that was caught on video. Um, And Erdogan has told the press uh, repeatedly that he wants to negotiate with Musk uh, and wants to have a phone call about past censorship of his tweets. Mm -hmm. And this is not the first time that Musk has been criticized over free speech issues. We do a lot of work on India uh, journalism here at, at the branch. And we have one India podcast that's very successful in India. And we're working on another one. Um, that's a deep investigative piece. And we've been following Twitter's, uh, us, you know, basically they've been caving to demands from Modi to take down content in that country, including a BBC documentary that was critical of Modi. And so it seems like there's just all kinds of questions Mm -hmm. being raised here. Matthew Iglesias tweeted at Musk and, you know, Musk got really defensive saying, well, like, do you want me to take the whole, you know, the the whole platform down? And like, I would need to hear more from Twitter about even whether that was even the real threat here. We don't have any oh, information it, to know for sure. They had a statement that said that was the final threat of, of revoking service entirely. Twitter came out with a statement about that, saying this is the pro- pro- uh, product of a week-long negotiation, that there was a final threat that was given by Erdogan, um, that there were five court orders that Erdogan filed against them. And the only way that they could make sure that Twitter remained available in the country in its entirety was to acquiesce on these accounts, but that they are continuing to object in court um, in the Turkish Supreme Court and and to see if they can get this 
overturned. Obviously, that's might be too little too late on the first election. Um, we're, we have to wait until May 28th for the second. But, you know, there this it the question was, do they turn off Twitter entirely? And they they were under the impression that this was the final threat. Um, it wouldn't be shocking if that were the case, considering in the past Erdogan um, in the wake of that earthquake, I think in February, blocked Twitter entirely for 12 hours when there was um, there were a lot of um, criti- there was a lot of criticism of the way that he handled the the rescue effort and a lot of videos going around revealing just how terrible the infrastructure was there. Also, um, during the 2014 election, he blocked Twitter as well. So it wouldn't be unprecedented for him to fully block the social media company entirely. It does seem it does seem like some companies have fought him. So the Wikipedia founder tweeted back at Musk saying, quote, we stood strong to our principles and fought to the Supreme Court of Turkey and won. This is what it means to treat freedom of expression as a principle rather than a slogan. And I also think that, look, like you have to fight these things because now every other authoritarian regime or even mm-hmm. like moderately authoritarian regimes now look at this and say, hey, if you threaten Twitter, they'll back down. And it seems like even short of a complete threat to take these things down, under Musk's leadership, at least according to the data, uh, he's been rather weak when it comes to global free speech protections. There's a report from this this organization called Rest of the World. It's a technology publication. And according to their data, Twitter under Musk has complied with over 80% of government demands for censorship or surveillance. That's up from 50% in the year before his acquisition. So apparently this company was, you know, he had criticized it for somehow being um, you know, under the thumb of government and suppressing free speech. That's That was the premise behind him buying Twitter, but somehow he's gone from 50% suppression or, you know, basically acceding to demands of suppression to now 80%. And we have this really high profile, two cases now of so-called democracies that have been backsliding where he, you know, seems rather quick to accede to their demands. And it raises all kinds of questions as to why, you know, and when he has business ties or potential business ties to some of these countries, that makes me even more skeptical of what this guy is doing over there. Yeah. I'm just to clarify, um, according to Turkey and according to Twitter, uh, Twitter is the only social media company that's not been complying with these censorship requests and, you know, they're still in court. So I think that there's some it remains to be seen like just how how much the gun was to the head of of Musk and Twitter to to maintain the service in Turkey but i mean i would come down on the side of you know if you want to block the the platform then block the platform because otherwise i think that you do start a slippery slope um but you know in in april of 2022 musk said by free speech i simply mean that which matches the law and obviously it's enormously corrupt that this is the law in Turkey at the moment and that Erdogan can just move to, to say as much. Um, but you know, when I think back to this feels very much like the Hunter Biden laptop story to me, um, where it's like the, the final hour pulling something down in order to save face for a presidential candidate or, you know, that's what it's alleged. But in the, in a, in a way, I hope now that there's this runoff election that the kind of stray sand effect situation of having had this censorship scandal, perhaps that might tilt things away from Erdogan's favor. It might draw more attention to what exactly the corruption allegations were that he cared enough to get removed. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, it's a obviously a much more complicated domestic situation, but there's a an important difference between. Um, like having a runoff election and this having decided it. So there's still hope to be held out that potentially this could end up backfiring on Erdogan. Yeah, I think, but there are two responses I have to to Musk when he says that I'm just following the law. One is he went beyond the law repeatedly at Twitter domestically in the United States. So for instance, when it came to the tracking of planes and all that kind of stuff, as we Mm -hmm. pointed out at that time, uh, what that kid was doing with that account, and certainly what Mastodon and others were doing that he was blocking, was not against the law. Uh, and he was blocking reporters who were merely reporting on it. So he's willing to go beyond the law at times. And and I'll read you a tweet from Ken Roth, which gets to this too, which is, there, there's a problem with the way he's framing this, because the people who are trying to change the law are being stifled by Musk's actions. This is what Ken Roth had to say, quote, 
What makes this even worse is that Musk tried to justify his acquiescence to censorship demands by saying that people can change the law allowing censorship. But Musk accepted censorship on the eve of today's election, making it harder for people in Turkey to change the law, end quote. So the way yeah. you change law is through freedom of expression. It's through, you know, making points on Twitter like the, the journalist who is suppressed or the businessman who is suppressed on the eve of an election, making your case. And if you're being stifled from making your case, you can't change the law. Yeah. So if you're in Musk's shoes, then do you let Twitter get blocked out in Turkey entirely? Yeah, I think you, in my opinion, this is like the don't negotiate with terrorists sort yeah, of point, which is if he, if he, if he bends here, he's going to bend in another country. It's already happening in India. And then you have to put the government's feet to the fire to be like, Hey, and this is true of all big tech. I think this is what they all should do. And a lot of these cl- companies claim to be American companies to mm-hmm. say, look, if you want to do business with us, that's great for you. Modi's a great example who like the one of the biggest parts of Modi's appeal in India is that he's great for the economy. Mm-hmm. And if all of these companies that you know, you know, Tim Cook was just there doing like a huge opening ceremony of a huge Apple store and everybody's just gushing over the business environment in India. If these companies started to say, "Look, we will not do business in your country," uh, or we're happy to do business in your country, but we're not going to comply with laws that offend our values. If they started to do that, I actually started to, th- I, I think that the, that would have a lot of pressure on some of these, com- these countries that are looking to grow rapidly. But when they accede to these demands so fast, I think it just takes away such an important part of the discussion. And, and sometimes it suppresses our speech. So there's this guy named Saurabh Das, um, who is a journalist who covers India, who pointed out that he was tweeting about Amit Shah, who's the home minister of India, and it was blocked not just in India, but worldwide. So these companies are also depriving us of content related to things that are happening in their country. So it's a it's abridging our ability to even understand, understand what's going on. So other countries' oppressive laws are starting to suppress our speech here in the United States. And that's not the only reason why it's wrong, but it just makes it even more annoying. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the, the kind of central issues I think that Twitter is having consistently is the centralization of power around Musk and, you know, the fact that it's it's very much open to whatever his mistakes or flaws may be. And so another interesting revelation in the Twitter world is that he's appointed a new CEO. So potentially that might kind of dull his effect on how Twitter is run. Um, her name is Linda Yaccarino. She's a former executive at NBC Universal, who was their chairman of global advertising and partnerships and did a really good job protecting the traditional TV ad business as social media was on the rise um, and was a really soft after media executive, she actually a month ago interviewed Elon and kind of put his feet to the fire. And it's interesting to see that she clearly earned his respect and obviously this appointment. But now he will be stepping back as the chief technology officer and letting her well take the reins a little bit more. Or well, <laughs> I think he's setting he's stepping back as CEO. But this is what he he tweeted. He says his he'll continue in his role as executive chair CTO, so chief technology officer. Yeah. He'll run product, software, and psyops, whatever psyops is over there. So here's my hot take, Ricky. He's still the CEO. If I said to you, hey, Ricky, I'm stepping down as CEO of the branch, but I'm going to be the chair of the branch, which means that the CEO is going to report to me. And I'm also going to be the chief content officer. I'm going to run product, which means in this case, I'm going to run all of our editorial journalism. Uh, I'm going to do software uh, and psyops. I mean, what, you basically, and he says she'll basically handle operations and marketing. So basically the stuff that Musk doesn't want to do. She's a chief operating officer, chief marketing officer, not a CEO. This is my take. And I think it will become apparent in the year ahead when these two start to butt heads over certain things. And this person who seems very comfortable talking in public as CEO is going to butt up against the ego of Elon Musk, who's going to be offended by every little thing she says that deviates from whatever is going on in his brain. Well, so, okay. I great, think great let's just COO, rewind. Let's rewind to when they Twitter. let's rewind to when they like cross paths before CEO <laughs> because it's interesting because she's not she's not taking it particularly easy on him. So let's run that clip. Will you commit to be a little more uh, specific and not tweet after three a.m.? People in this room would would like to see that. Um, we'll make them feel more I will, confident. I will aspire to, to tweet to less after three a.m. But I mean, it, it is important that, you know, I mean, if I were to say, yes, you can influence me, that would be wrong. That would be very wrong. 
Because Let me, that would be a diminishment of freedom of speech. But I want to be specific about influencing. It's more of an open feedback loop for the advertising experts in this room to help develop Twitter into a place where they will be excited about investing more money, product development, yeah. ad safety, sure. content moderation. That's what the influence is. Yeah, I think um, it's totally cool to say that you want to have your advertising appear in certain places in Twitter and not in other places. But it is not cool to, to, to try to say what Twitter will do. And if that means losing advertising dollars, we lose it. But freedom of speech is paramount. So this is before she was named CEO. She's challenging his his ego in some important ways, I think. She's she's showing that she is willing to stand up to him. And to his credit, this is someone that he later selected. So this is not someone that's just puffing him up, which I think is promising and maybe a sign that he's becoming more self-aware that he can't be the singular a uh, person at the helm. Yeah, but she didn't here. work I, for I him hope... back there, Ricky. I well, but, you know, I mean, <laughs> she but wasn't picked, working for him. He could have picked a stand like me to to be his CEO that never challenged him. You know, so are you still but, a stand? Though? No, I'm kidding. Are, the, critical I'm kidding. question. The I've audience is going to I've know. been critical of a lot of his moves. I don't think you can centrally control like one person deciding more or less what's going on with Twitter and Turkey and stuff. But um, I, I mean, she's in the I. I'm interested to see what she does. She seems to be genuinely kind of tough and challenging him on, on certain things more than maybe some would expect. Um, but in the past, she said that it's a fascinating purchase of Twitter on his behalf, um, that she wouldn't bet against him and that he needs to learn more about advertising. She said, give me a break. I think we can teach him. Um, so this is right now, Twitter is valued yep. at 20 billion versus the 44 billion that he, um, that he bought it for. And I think one of the important keys here is that a lot of the reason that the ad market is shriveling is because of Elon's own actions. And so part of her role as an advertising person is going to involve being like, hey, no more 3 a.m. tweets or how do we make sure that the content on here is is appealing and in line with what advertisers need from us? I want to be optimistic. I want to be optimistic. My assumption is he has known about this for a couple of days, even before he announced it, right? Now, no more 3 a.m. tweets. He's tweeting at Matt Iglesias that his brain fell out of his head defending the decision to take content down in Turkey and was still hasn't been totally transparent about those decisions. That's all happened in the past few days. Now, she's, once again, like when you name a new CEO, like Bob Iger did this at Disney, it is common for the old CEO to become the chair. It is not common for the old CEO to become the chair and stay as a executive at the working level at that company. Never mind take you know the most important executive working level position, which is CTO. You know, so this is highly unusual. And when you take that combined with everything we know about Musk, my prediction will timestamp it. This ain't going to work well. She'll in the short term because she has great relationships with advertising. I have no doubt that she'll make some calls. She'll bring some people back to the table. But then some point down the line, I'm going to ink it at late August. There's going to be a major dust up here. And I don't think she lasts long. And I also think that she probably negotiated a pretty good contract that has less to do with stock options and more to do with cash. And so, you know, she probably is prepared for the inevitability that this thing couldn't work out. That's my sense. But that's just a prediction. So we'll put it out there. It's going to be on the internet. I'll be, I'll be we'll accountable clip to that. clip that and see how it goes. I'll just be optimistic. I'm holding out hope, even though I don't have a lot. The debt ceiling negotiations. Before they agree to raise the debt limit. Before that June 1st default deadline. If the Congress does not authorize additional borrowing, would be an unprecedented event that economists say could cause a recession or a global financial crisis. Prepared to begin a separate discussion about my budget, but not under the threat of default. I would hope that he'd be willing to negotiate so we could actually solve this problem and not take America on the brink. They didn't produce a budget. What they did was produce a ransom note. The United States is not going to default. Let's talk about the debt ceiling. So as we speak, 
members of the GOP caucus in the House are meeting with the White House staff and the Treasury staff, and they're negotiating as Treasury has warned that we could face a default as soon as June 1st. So um, um, we're not going to report on too much that could be reported today, but we want to give you a bit of the structure of what's going on here. So you know, up until now, Democrats have basically said they want a debt ceiling increase with no conditions attached, while Republicans want to use the debt ceiling as leverage to cut government spending, which we'll get to. Um, so, and if the government can't, you know, reach a deal, all sorts of bad things happen, which we'll talk about. Uh, the potential areas for compromise, Ricky, there seem to be a few. Do you want to outline just a couple of the top line sort of issues that we know for sure that the White House who's pretending like they're not negotiating over these details, but it seems like some leaks are coming out that they're open to a couple of things here? Yeah, I mean, there have been a ton of different asks. Um, There was a Republican House bill that passed a while ago that would do some serious deep cuts and involve a $1.5 trillion hike with a $4.8 trillion cut in spending um, and cut discretionary spending by 8% which, I mean, a variety of asks um, about being more fiscally responsible. Um, You could argue and quibble over how they want to pull back, but they'd like to cap spending at 2022 levels for the next decade, repeal aspects of the student loan bill, um, rescind unspent COVID-19 funds, which seems like a pretty logical one to me, to be honest, Um, increase work requirements for benefits for government employees, easing permit requirements for pipelines, repealing um, parts of the of Biden's landmark Inflation Reduction Act, um, in pulling back IRS funding, which we talked about a while ago, uh, diverting money away from climate change spending, and apparently also now border security and talks about the border are being pulled in, which feels a little bit like a diversion considering that there's a potential here that this involves a requirement that we would start building a wall again in some way, shape or form, which would be mm-hmm. more spending. So it's about it's it's a, not just <laughs> about pulling back spending. It's about deciding where the spending that we're doing is going. But, you know, this whole argument, like just to pull back for a second, it's we the whole debt ceiling thing is kind of ridiculously arbitrary. We've raised it 78 times since 1960 and it only becomes a whole thing when when the president is a different party from Congress. Um, we almost yes. didn't in 2011. Seasonal budget hawks is what I talk about. Yeah, I mean... Seasonal budget hawks. We're talking about raising the debt ceiling on spending that Congress already approved. So it's kind of like we're always on this back foot of knowing that we're eventually going to change it. And this, I guess, is just like our regular little checkup when the parties don't align to say, okay, how are we being irresponsible and how can we pull it in? But, you know, it's like, feels like a big old circus. (laughs) Yes. Well, okay. I want to get to, there's actually something really fascinating about the contradiction between Congress having already approved spending and then also passing a bill saying you can't spend that amount of money, but we'll put a pin in that for a second. Uh, Let's go to this clip from former Senator Judd Gregg, who's kind of sizing up the negotiations. This was him on CNBC recently. Oh, they're both going to have to give. And, uh, Unfortunately, you've got a grumpy old man going up against a guy who's got virtually no place to move because he'd lose his speakership. But they both understand that if they go into default, uh, if we go into default, the damage is going to be enormous to both sides. So at some point, they're going to have to reach some understanding. And there there are a lot of places for understanding. I mean, caps have historically always been in place in order to try to discipline discretionary spending. And so some level of caps is certainly reasonable. Recovering some of the money that hasn't been spent on COVID is reasonable. Maybe some of the regulatory reform that Manchin wants is reasonable. There are a number of places where they can save face. The issue is, do they have the strength of leadership to do that? My guess is that in the end, uh, self-preservation rules, and they probably come to some sort of an agreement. But we're on much more dangerous ground than I've ever seen. And I was there in 2011 where we almost defaulted. And, you know, the 2011 essentially was the beginning of the end of Boehner's speakership. And I think that's what McCarthy has in the back of his head is, hey, like he's got the weakest hold on the speakership ever, mm-hmm. in part because of the numbers that he has, but in part because he had to negotiate all these sort of concessions that, you know, mean that any member can essentially call a vote on the speakership at any point. Political reported, though, something really interesting this morning that said that there's a small group of moderate Democratic lawmakers in the House who've reassured McCarthy's people that they can protect him in the event that he strikes a deal with Biden 
and his own people come after him. So mm-hmm. essentially what they would do is vote for McCarthy for speaker is what they're essentially committing to uh, as a way to just give McCarthy a little bit more um, leverage, which I think is a promising thing. You know, I'm not I'm no McCarthy fan, but I actually think like if, if Democrats, um, you know, I think they call it the common sense caucus or something like that. If they're able to come to the table and say, hey, we could protect you from a short term vote. Mm-hmm. against your speakership if you negotiate in good faith. And for me, I define good faith as not adding random shit at the end, like the border, right? Like it's important to talk about the border, mm-hmm. but you can't put every wish list that you know a Democrat isn't going to vote for because that's not good faith. Yeah. And I mean, there's there's really common sense things that you can do here. And I think the unspent COVID-19 funds would be the most obvious one. Um, but there's, there have been talks of different workarounds to get around the concept of having a debt ceiling, even in the first place, which I don't think I'm really in favor of, because even though it does feel arbitrary and performative, having some sort of check on government spending and just checking in every once in a while does seem like a good thing. Maybe there's a better way to do it, but you know, this is what we have, but there was talk about minting a $1 trillion platinum coin for the Federal Reserve to pull funding from, which doesn't seem like it's going to happen. But then also um, a potential that Biden could point to the 14th Amendment, which says the validity of public debt authorized by law shall not be questioned. It's a relic of the Civil War after Confederate states refused to pay their dues. Um, and this would allow Biden to say that failing to make payments that they promised is unconstitutional based on this amendment. Um, even if the the debt ceiling is not raised, it was considered by Biden. He didn't end up, or sorry, it was considered by Obama. He did not end up using it in 2011. But Ravi, what's your take on whether the 14th Amendment could be an avenue here? Yeah, I think there's a cousin of the 14th Amendment argument that Lawrence Tribe, the the you know, professor emeritus at Harvard and longtime Supreme Court advocate has been talking about. And he's basically saying, look, there's a contradiction here. And this is kind of a cousin of the 14th Amendment argument. There's a contradiction at the heart of what Congress has done here. They're basically asking Biden to either disregard former laws that they've passed, basically saying you must spend money on this, this and this. Those are laws. The debt ceiling is also a law saying you may not spend more than X. So they've appropriated more money than their their own debt ceiling legislation allows. And that's a contradiction and essentially puts Biden in a place where he has to pick and choose mm-hmm. which laws of Congress he's going to comply with. And for that reason, Lawrence Tribe thinks this is unconstitutional and that Biden has some wiggle room here. Let's go to this clip. At that point, the president will be boxed in. There is nothing he'll be able to do that doesn't involve violating some law that Congress has passed. Either he violates the law that arbitrarily sets the ceiling, that's codified in Title 31 in Section uh, 3101, or he violates the laws that Congress also passed that require him to spend money on various programs in violation also of the 14th Amendment. And there is a unanimous Supreme Court decision a decision called Train versus City of New York in 1975 that says that when Congress has required the president to spend money on various programs, in that case, it was on a clean water program, he must do so. So if you've got to choose between violating all of the laws that Congress passed for Social Security and military spending and other kinds of spending or violating that one arbitrary debt ceiling, it's obvious which choice he ought to make. And that is violate that one law. And, uh, you know, Tribe talks about how there is already a lawsuit brought by 75,000 federal employees that's making its way through the courts right now uh, that names the president and secretary of treasury as defendants, essentially saying like, look, they have standing as people who, if the president didn't and you know allowed the debt ceiling to hit and basically stop paying federal employees they would have standing and would be aggrieved and essentially would force the hand of the Supreme Court tribe argues that the Supreme Court will favor what he calls the conservative path of paying our debts which is an interesting spin um I think given how politicized the court is I I wouldn't hold my breath on that but Ricky what do you you know you kind of floated this theory earlier like, does he have a point? Like, Biden's kind of in a weird position where Congress is asking him to ignore, you know, some of their laws one way or another. 
I think the whole thing is kind of weird in general, like the entire performative aspect here. But I mean, there's serious talk about questions of whether we might default on our debt, which would um, be like calamitous for the economy and completely unprecedented. Um, I don't really fall into the camp of thinking that these negotiations won't in the end at the final hour pull through before June 1st. But where do you stand on that? Well, I think part of what Biden is doing is using this leverage to force the House GOP to consider a world where he doesn't need that, right? Yeah. Like if he, if he, it's like a game of chicken. If he's saying, "Look, I'm willing to go to the Supreme Court. I'm willing to just breeze past this deadline and continue paying our bills, and force your hand here," I mean, th- there is this is a you know we're getting close to constitutional crisis territory, mm-hmm. and so the hope there is. You know, my sense is if I'm predicting the likely outcomes, I'm thinking that the most likely outcome is that there's some kind of concession on the energy permitting and like maybe a couple other small things, the COVID dollars that allows Congress to say, you know, McCarthy to say, I extracted a victory from Biden. I do think there's going to be some consternation amongst his own people. And I, and I don't know if they'll call a vote on him, but I think you're going to see some of the the more extreme members of his caucus calling him out for that. Uh, but if I were saying what my second most likely scenario is, I think my second most likely scenario is that Biden forces the Supreme Court's hands. And that has, you know, it not only will trigger a constitutional crisis, it'll trigger a, uh, I think, like a bit of panic in the bond markets as people start mm-hmm. to, you know, doubt the sort of full faith and credit of the United States. And so that is, that's a world where we don't want, um, one more video though, Ricky from tribe where he talks about how, you know, there's, there was this debate in the nineties over a line item veto, basically like there was this whole debate about whether you give the president the ability to just take a big appropriations package and pick and choose what he wants to veto instead of the whole package. Uh, we have not been given that, the, that power to the president. Uh, it currently would be unconstitutional to do a line item veto. And Tribe is essentially saying the only way forward in the scenario that Congress has given Biden is they're basically asking him to perform line item vetoes. Let's go to this clip. If Congress leaves it to the president to pick and choose who are the winners and who are the losers, that is, which debts to pay, that is an unconstitutional line item veto. So the only constitutional way through this Forest Mm. is right through the trees and the trees really have to be uh, taken care of. That is, we we have to pay our bills. All right. Well, probably a good place to end. We'll see what happens here. Uh, Not a great place for us to be. It's rather embarrassing and just gets the sense of like, I'm not sure things are getting any better in Congress. You know, if you even look at, we, we thought 2011 at the time, I was you know, very, very, very heavily following that in 2011. And that felt like the high, high point of this function. I was in fifth grade, so I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact that we're looking back at that, like, yeah. oh, more reasonable times, like, it's just rather yeah. scary to me. Ricky, Speaking of unreasonable times. (laughs) (laughs) We were going to hold on talking about this because there was so much panic over this, uh, but there have been a lot of really interesting arguments playing out ever since Trump uh, last week went on CNN. And there's this debate, right, over platforming, which I know is a word you must love. You must love the language of platforming. Platforming literally (laughs) means interviewing. Like, when did we decide that interviewing someone was somehow... Platforming has this, like, insinuation that there's a degree of endorsement just by acknowledging someone's existence. And that term really bugs me because it just feels very loaded and it's an excuse to censor people and to censor people's ideas. And to, I think think it just concedes to a, a... bad misconception that pretending something doesn't exist or pushing it underground makes it not exist just because it may be a little bit more pleasant for you. But, you know, clearly if there's anything that this town hall demonstrated based on audience response, there's a plurality of Americans who still are very supportive of him. And it's worth knowing that and getting that out into the open instead of just pretending in our little New York Times bubbles that he's only on truth social tweeting to himself. He's he's still a serious contender here and we need to acknowledge that. 
Well, and Ricky, let me let me lay out the contours of how um, I would like us to talk about this. So, if you're in 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 our audience and you love Trump, then you're just like, hey, it doesn't like this is an easy one for you. You're like, hey, I love Trump and like putting him on TV, great, right? So for you, that's a very simple argument. So what I want our audience to do for the purposes of this exercise is pretend that you believe things that people like me believe. Because if you love Trump, you love Trump. So this is not an interesting discussion to you. But if you believe that, as I believe, that Trump says and does things that are actually rather dangerous and unprecedented, especially like his language around January 6th and the fact that he talks about pardoning people on January 6th and definitely like waded into that territory in this broadcast, which is we're not going to do a review of the broadcast itself, except to the extent that we're reviewing how CNN handled it. Like, if you believe that he says things that are truly unprecedented and dangerous, then the question becomes, well, then how do you handle that when that guy is the front runner for the nomination for Republicans? And I want to start here. And so that's my belief. I, I have a lot of problems with what he says. And then the question becomes, well, then how do you handle that? Like, because he's not some random dude in a garage. He's not Alex Jones. He's a guy who's part of a process in this country um, that you know, he's a front runner for one full political party that in any given election has a 50% chance of sending somebody to the White House. And so the question is, what do you do with that? John mm-hmm. Stewart said the following. He says, the problem with the Trump town hall wasn't platforming or a fragile, siloed audience unable to be exposed to newsworthy opinions antithetical to their own. The problem was an event that was clearly negotiated to Trump's approval and owed to access. I learned nothing from this town hall about Trump and his most ardent supporters. I haven't known since 2016. I learned a lot about CNN. I'm warm to this idea. We'll get to CNN's take. I thought Anderson Cooper had a really interesting response, but I'm a little warm to this because they did. It seemed to negotiate access here. They seemed to negotiate who is going to be in the audience. They seemed to negotiate who is going to be hosting it, and that to me seems like pretty weak stuff. CNN, as far as I'm aware, has denied that there was any sort of negotiation in this. I mean, the the premise of it was that it's a town hall for potential Trump voters to decide whether or not they want to vote for Trump, which you know isn't non-standard. It's just the fact that CNN is the place that's platforming him or I shouldn't have used my, my own term that I don't like, but CNN is the the one that is, is hosting it is kind of the anomaly, but it's not unusual to have a town hall for people who are considering voting for a candidate. But I think what no one expected or anticipated as far as I'm aware is that the audience would be as um, kind of rowdy and in favor of Trump and turning against Caitlin Collins, who I think, considering the challenge that was before her, held her own pretty decently, even though there were a few points where I think she was a little bit jumping on top of him and then obviously calling her nasty was not great. But I think one thing in terms of CNN and how we interpret what they did um, that's important is that Licht apparently on an internal call afterwards praised Caitlin Collins and said, I unequivocally believe America was served very well by what we did last night. There's so much of what we learned last night about what another Trump presidency looks like. And frankly, I agree. Well, here's the thing. We don't, I'm not sure I buy that CNN didn't negotiate this with Trump. There's a good article in the Atlantic by Tom Nichols. I think it's called like the CNN Jerry Springer problem or something like that. We'll link to that in the show notes. And Nichols kind of goes through as of the time of his writing, what we know and don't know about what CNN negotiated. And so he talks about, hey, like I caught, he, this is Nichols. You know, he's like, I called up the New Hampshire GOP and they said they were promised a certain number of seats. And he kind of goes through it and tries to figure out what CNN promised promise that he didn't. Listeners, you can go there and and decide for yourself there. But he said uh, the following. He said, whoever they were, so this was after he was basically outlining this sort of case for and against Mm -hmm. whether you know, CNN bent uh, in negotiating the terms. He says, whoever they were, Trump was jazzed by their support. Every slimy comment got a laugh or applause, including many about E. Jean Carroll, the woman who successfully sued Trump for sexual abuse and defamation this week. Um, Collins had to ask Carroll, of course, but after that the plan, if one existed, seemed to be for her to stand there and take it while Trump talked over her, made dirty jokes, and basked in the audience laughter. Trump's sleaziness, like everything else in the train wreck, was completely foreordained. And again, Licht and his producers had to know it. I'm not saying I believe everything there, but he's basically saying, look, they knew this coming in. He seems to insinuate that CNN was complicit into what that audience looked like, which is something I think that's still being litigated. 
So that's that's the case, Ricky, uh, against CNN. I mean, though, I would I would say the the line of questioning wasn't particularly friendly. Caitlin Collins did pretty much everything that seemed to me within her power to real time fact check him and push back. I I don't feel like it was this softball kind of coddled interview. I mean, if the audience liked it, that's their prerogative and not CNN's. Um, you know, I didn't feel the same, but there are people who think that this should not have been aired at all, period, in the first place, including AOC, who's been getting a lot of flack for saying it was a profoundly irresponsible position. I think it was a profoundly irresponsible decision. I don't think that it would I would be doing my job if I did not say that. Um, and what we saw tonight was a series of extremely irresponsible decisions that put a sexual abuse victim at risk, that put that person at risk in front of a national audience. And I could not have disagreed with it more. It was shameful. Well, I think from now on, we should, anytime any TV network wants to do anything, they should ask AOC for her permission about whether or not that's <laughs> acceptable to her because she's come out with a lot of, um, really coming out swinging with a lot of pro-censorship stances. And I'm not sure, you know, the alternative is he truths socials to his supporters and we don't even know what he thinks or feels. And this is important information, I think, for American democracy to understand what your fellow citizens are voting for, what your fellow citizens are listening to, and to have a chance to counter it, which is something that Anderson Cooper, I think, addresses pretty well in his opening of his show that followed. Now, many of you think CNN shouldn't have given him any platform to speak, and I understand the anger about that, giving him the audience, the time, I get that. But this is what I also get. The man you were so disturbed to see and hear from last night, that man is the front runner for the Republican nomination for president. And according to polling, no other Republican is even close. That man you were so upset to hear from last night, he may be president of the United States in less than two years. And that audience that upset you, that's a sampling of about half the country. They are your family members, your neighbors, and they are voting. And many said they're voting for him. Now, Maybe you haven't been paying attention to him since he left office. Maybe you've been enjoying not hearing from him, thinking it can't happen again. Some investigation is going to stop him. Well, it hasn't so far. So if last night showed anything, it showed it can happen again. It is happening again. He hasn't changed, and he is running hard. You have every right to be outraged today and angry and never watch this network again. But do you think staying in your silo and only listening to people you agree with is going to make that person go away? If we all only listen to those we agree with, it may actually do the opposite. So I'm I'm basically with Anderson Cooper here. The one thing that I'm awaiting judgment on, like if I'm saying like, what's my final opinion on this whole matter is whatever we learn in final about what CNN negotiated here, because that's going to matter a lot to me, because I think journalism is journalism. So if if they invited him on and they dictated the terms of who would be in that audience, and they and, and part of it is like, what's a negotiation? Like, part of it could be CNN negotiating with themselves. They can go to Trump's team and be like, look, what if we did this? What if we had this this reporter who I know you like instead of Jake Tapper and it was all Republicans in the audience and we had members of the New Hampshire GOP in the audience. Um, what do you think? And we gave you a whole hour and we did it on prime time. Would you do it? Right. You know, CNN could say, Hey, that's not a negotiation. That was an offer. But I would look at that and be like, well, that's pretty slimy. So I'm, but that's what I'm awaiting. It's like not a question of like, Oh my God, my faint heart can't handle Trump. It's like a question of journalism. I agree. I'm interested to see what other revelations come in that sense. But I think this is an important, this tone that Anderson Cooper is taking here is an important contrast to, I think, the attitudes of a lot of people going into 2016, where a lot of the thought process was this could never happen, that people who support him are only deplorable, racist, horrible people, that they're not worth engaging with, that they're not worth listening to or trying to reason with. And that attitude was what lost 2016 or what gave handed Trump a victory is making people feel that they were quarantined and not listened to and not engaged with and that their ideas were not platformed, so to say. Um, and I think, you know, having an actual kind of sunlight is the best disinfectant 
conversation here, even if the the infected thing is is appealing to a large swath of Americans is a much better way to go into an, the next election. If I were someone on the left concerned with not seeing Trump reelected than the posture that was taken in 2016. I think you and I have similar opinions on on some of the dynamics of the Republican primary. I think we'll probably disagree on when it gets to the general, but I think we're kind of rooting for similar things. But I'll leave that at that. Um, the couple of show updates, we want to start updating the audience. We realize sometimes we do these deep dives, and then sometimes we, you may miss that something really big happened in the life of a story that we teed up for you. One is this case out of California that we talked about a while ago, which had to do with an animal welfare law in California that essentially regulated like uh, animal cruelty as it relates to pigs and like how like much confinement they have, et cetera. They have to if be able to lie that, down and turn around, which is feels you know, pretty fundamental. Huge yeah. <laughs> yes. Disgusting. And so uh, th- this made its way to the Supreme Court because other states that have a lot of um, pork industry argued that California was regulating commerce outside of their state through this regulation. Mm-hmm. And, and there's this whole doctrine called the dormant commerce clause that we went through in a segment back in the day that we'll link to. Huge, huge, huge case that's not getting a lot of attention. And what's really interesting is the Supreme Court upheld this week, last week, California's ability to pass that law. And it is a mess of a decision that is actually totally ideological heterogeneous. So you got you know conservative appointees and liberal appointees um, on opposite, you know, together on different sides of this and concurrences and overlapping opinions and all that. And so we'll link in the show notes to a write up from SCOTUS blog that just walks you through what happened there. But we wanted to make sure we updated the audience on that case because you are budding Supreme Court scholars, all of you. We also wanted to quickly just touch on and point you in the direction of Google, who made an announcement this week that they uh, are they they announced this thing called Google Bard, Ricky, which is available in 180 English-speaking countries, including Japan and Korea, and it is a rival to ChatGPT and the sort of GPT plug into to Bing that Microsoft has. And mm-hmm. you know, in a nutshell, what Google Bard allows you to do, which you can access it now, we were playing around with it yesterday. It's kind of weird and highly inaccurate so far. <laughs> is it? Here's some of the differences between BARD and ChatGPT. One is it allows you to access the internet to search. ChatGPT is a closed system. It crawls the internet, but it's like years behind. So BARD also has uh, the latest info. So it could be like, you know, we were playing around with like, look at our Twitter feed and summarize Ricky's Twitter feed and Ravi's Twitter feed now. And it, even though makes highly inaccurate, tweets. it's pulling that information as of today. Makes up tweets, makes up, you know, it says that I'm a venture capitalist who clerked for Guido Calabresi on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which, great. Send that to Wikipedia <laughs> or something. I would love the world to think that. Interesting. Um, my my summary that, was uh, accurate. You can, yeah, mine was not. Um, hmm. There's a, it, it allows you to export content from Google Docs and Gmail. It has Gmail integration. It allows you to summarize web, web pages. It allows you to do voice prompts. Uh, and it also gives you searches related to your prompts. Ricky, have you been able to go on this thing yet? I have not used it yet. I've only seen your summary of me as a person that's been sent to me, which just gave a bunch of libertarian platitudes, but it got it got my vibe generally okay. It got my bio correct. It seems to have been plucked directly from Google Books, but that's okay. That was accurate. Um, I don't know, uh, but interesting to see. I think the to me, the most important nuance here is the real-time up-to-date aspect of it because it can get information from the internet that's showing up today versus ChatGPT has the September 2021 start or I guess end date on the body of information that it has, which makes it irrelevant in a lot of ways um, and obviously makes Google Bard maybe more susceptible to errors, more susceptible to, uh, or I guess less susceptible to guidelines or kind of uh, contours on on what it is or is not allowed to do if right. it's kind of at the will of the internet, which I view as a positive because I, I think it should be less about what programmers and, and coders think should be allowable in um, the AI sphere than what the body of the internet produces. But obviously, you know, then we're going to have this whole, I guess, probably renewed disinformation panic situation happen in the AI front mm-hmm. as a result. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. I, I don't know if you, if you have this experience, but I love to play around with these AI tools. And now I have a folder 
in uh, my browser now of like, I don't know, it's like nine or 10 AI tools that I've now saved my credentials for. And I'm like, I have to create like a web of like, okay, what do we use this one for versus using that one for, et cetera. And some of them, even though they're pulling from some of the same, you know, we talked about this with a con, sometimes they're pulling from the same, uh, you know, uh, underlying machinery. Mm-hmm. They have wildly different outcomes based on what kind of coding base and instructions they put on top of that. And speaking of that, let's go to our voicemails. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. We have a voicemail on this very subject about AI uh, and education and specifically referencing our segment that we did last week on Khan Academy and Khan Migo. This is Sarah from Salt Lake City. I wanted to call in after I listened to your piece on Khan's AI uh, because the idea of AI doing math tutoring seems like the worst possible case scenario. Um, I really hated math in high school, but I loved it in college. So I ended up tutoring some of my friends' kids. And um, it seems like kids that are frustrated with math are really having a hard time with the language and the rules that seem arbitrary. And the idea that an AI or a robot would then tell them that they distributed incorrectly seems uh, seems maddening. So maybe AI will get better in the future, but uh, right now I get frustrated when a chatbot cannot navigate me through like a phone tree. So, um, you know, what's really needed for students that are struggling is human encouragement and empathy and maybe some creative imagery to help them get around that uh, language barrier. So just wanted to pitch in my two cents. Thanks a lot and thanks for the show. Yeah, I think this is this is the question, right? A lot of people, it sounds like Sarah, if I'm hearing Sarah correctly, is like, although she has like sort of principled objections, she also has quality objections to the mm-hmm. AI. And a big question I have is as the quality gets better, are people going to warm to it more or are they actually going to feel even more appalled by it? Because in certain cases, if it sucks, it sucks. And people by and large aren't going to replace vast swaths of instruction with something that isn't very mm-hmm. good. But if it's really good, then it starts to actually threaten the existing way of doing things. And that raises a whole host of other questions. Yeah, I think I'm kind of with her in the sense that there is a human touch aspect that'll always be required and that I'm also spooked by this concept. But I do think, you know, if you have a classroom of a gazillion kids or in a context of a a developing country that doesn't have access to adequate teaching for every child, there are plenty of applications. And, you know, for the kid who's doing just fine or might be confused or wants to check something in a classroom, that's one thing versus the kid that's fundamentally struggling that needs that teacher support. So theoretically, you could free up teacher support. I think it's just a matter of, not going too gung-ho head first and making sure that we figure out that delicate balance of what should not be automated. Because I agree that there's a dystopian future where a robot is everything and you lose all human connection to the love of learning, which is not just rote memorization or rote distribution or whatever it might be. Well, Thank you, listeners, for sending in those voicemails. Make sure to get out there and rate, review, and subscribe to The Lost Debate wherever you get your shows. We are a nonprofit. At the moment, we don't run advertising. We don't charge you. We don't have gated content. The one thing you could do for us to help us is go out there and write a really strong five-star review or whatever many stars that they give out there and say nice things about us. Share it with your friends. Also, our voicemail number is 321-200-0570. We will be back on Thursday, same time and place as usual. Thank you very much, everybody. 